right, we are back for another week here at Megasheen. I am Victor. And I'm Nick. And Megasheen is your bi-weekly podcast, all things gay and geeky from a queer Black perspective. It's yeah. been a minute. So, Victor, what's new in your neck of the woods? Um, moved into a new place. Um, enjoying that. Got plants. Um, Got to keep up with them. I love that you can only water them once a week. Um, and... Um, getting used to paying, you know, like for electricity and water. So I keep the lights off. So I'm, I'm basically everybody's grandmama about you keeping the lights off if you're not in the room. <laughs> and um, also watching the water too, even though water doesn't cost that much. But still, I'm like, hey, I'm paying for this stuff now and paying real rent, which I don't want to really do, but I guess I have no choice. So I wanted my own spot. And that's how it is. See, I look at you. You wanted to be grown. Now look at you. I know. I'm so prepared. Like, oh my God. So I have to make sure. Like, that's the funny part. People were laughing at me because I was like, oh, you know, I have to, I have to, I only can live off this for two weeks. And they was like, um, sir, who couldn't live off that for two weeks? I'm right. like, <laughs> but I was like, now I do. And so uh, we just can't be running out here buying brand new you know, $200 storm uh, statues and- Well, going to the Didier's uh, Arclight. We can't go anyway, <laughs> but when that, I'm still going to go. <laughs> we may be bologna sandwiches, but we're going to still go to the Arclight. That is, mm. the, you get a bologna sandwich or in a nice theater. And a can uh, soda, the 50 cent ones, the RC Cola. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I will say if you get a drink at the ArcLight, that is six dollars. So I'm just, you know, but you know that you 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 don't need to go to the movies all the time, and so I'll just be mindful of that. But you know, I, I'm very thankful I was able to get the place. I have to deal with neighbors. I mean, I had neighbors where we had pretty much people who lived in my complex were industry folks and retired people. So it wasn't really- The perfect kind. It was a perfect thing. I now have people with families and with kids who are watching all types of cartoons and JoJo and Coco and whoever these little kids are, these, that they be singing and dancing on TV. So they are um, enjoying that and I'm dealing with that. That's okay, that's okay. Um, <laughs> It's mostly quiet, but it's just, you know, in the day when you're working from home, you can hear the kids. And I'm like, well, right. I can't wait to get that, you know, daycare open again. I feel bad for these parents because these kids. Right. These kids are pissed me off. I know what bit. They just running around like, I didn't know kids had this much energy. Mm. But yeah, I looked at one of the little kids like, like they were a monster. I'm like, y'all doing too much. It's, I'm trying to watch the news and it's noon. So I need for y'all like come, but you know, can't complain. What about yourself? Um, let's see. Well, uh, grad school is still uh, still going good. Um, I started my first um, my first watch of uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, mm -hmm. and when I tell you, I knew it was good, mm -hmm. but. Avatar The Last Bender is one of my top five cartoons ever. It's that good. Like, I think you would like it. 
Um, there's this, uh, I didn't realize this until I saw a video about it uh, on uh, YouTube. Uh, even though it's uh, regarded as anime, mm -hmm. there's a certain fluidity throughout the series, even in its animation that I didn't, I didn't take a look at. And then I went even further and it applies to like the fluidity of all of the elements, like the fire, earth, air, and water, how those elements are in complete alignment or balance, as they would say on the show. But there was a, this one um, particular scene that they uh, construct, deconstructed on this uh, breakdown of the series on YouTube. And in regular anime, if like, say me and you were arguing and one of us would just be stoic while um, the other person was, you know, talking or whatnot. Like in Avatar, there's this one scene where two of the characters are arguing and there's this still this movement within the, the frame and a, a regular anime wouldn't do that. And it goes back to that fluidity throughout the show. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, it is emotional. I know there's one of the emotional parts that uh, a lot of people resonate with is one of the characters, uh, his name is Uncle Iroh. And uh, he he's doing this, um, oh, this, uh, this remembrance of his son that had died in the war. And he starts singing the Soldier Boy um, song. And then the actor starts crying too. The actor who's doing the voice starts crying too. And it is just so fucking emotional. Me and the boyfriend were just sitting there just bawling. And I will, it's like, it's, I attribute it to, um, it's almost like, uh, so yes. Exactly when uh, Jackie Benton died. Oh Lord, it's that emotional. But if you haven't seen uh, Avatar, um, I highly, I can't say enough about it. There's not a bad episode in it because you know you have those episodes that, oh here we go with this one just to get through the season, or you have that season that is like man, for you to get to the other season that's good. There's really not a bad episode to me in uh, Avatar. And also, um, well, when we get to Aunt Mace T, there's some more news surrounding Avatar and all of that. Uh, but other than that, you know, still working out. Uh, finally ran, um, well, we're recording on a Saturday and this was released Monday. So this Saturday, I ran for the first time in like since October. Because, um, you know, I had my hip pains and knee pains and, you know, I don't really want to do this. And it was getting colder and all of that bullshit. So it was good to get back out, um, especially with my running group. Other than that, you know, not much else. Not much else. No, that's good. I saw that y'all had snow. I was like, nope, no, no. We had snow. We had ice. We had rain. We had sleet. I'm like, fuck. We just had wind. 
Uh, we had win. <laughs> that was about it. And people would have, you would have thought we were about to all die the way people were like, I'm not going outside. I'm not driving the win. I'm like, okay, y'all. But wow. Well, I'm glad you're back in the running and all that good stuff. I know you love it. Yeah. So we'll see. Ask me like two months from now, do I still love running? And I'll probably like cuss you out. <laughs> I know I hate it. I hate when they always try to make us do it at CrossFit. I'm like, you know what? Even 300 meters, that's too much. I'm like, let me just give me the jump rope. I'll do 300 jump rope. There's actually a CrossFit gym right across the street Mm -hmm. from where I work out. And I see them sometimes they have to run out and then run back in and then run out again. I was like, what's going on over there? Yeah, that's what that's what it is. You should try. You should try CrossFit. I think you'll like it. I tried to get some of the uh, running people to go and they were like, I was like, oh, so does this particular day work for everybody? Nobody said anything, even though they said they were interested. I'm like, okay, girl, I'm only going to, I'm not going to beg you. (laughs) You should try it. You know, it's always good, especially I'm sure there'll be plenty of eye candy. I know we have plenty. So I know. Child, the eye candy that was in the gym. (sighs) That motherfucker should have been tucked. I'll just say that. Yeah, some people. I can't wait to the gym to open up. I miss having the option of going to either or. Um, oh, but the gym's going to be, I just realized that, just moved. So I have to, oh, I can go to the other LA Fitnesses straight down the street versus the other one way down the street. But mm-hmm. I can't wait till it's open to back, it opens back up. Unless uh, there's some that have the outside, but I'm not a member of 24 Hour Fitness. So, right. Uh, I, I, I can't wait till we have the option. You know, everybody, you know, the, the vaccine is getting out there, everybody. So, you know, I know some people are like a little hesitant, but, you know, if you get the opportunity, just at least sign up and think about it when your date comes. Um, but yeah, it's, it looks like we're returning. We are slightly turning that curve, you know. Slowly but surely. Yeah. So hopefully, as they say, you know, by this, we'll, we should be halfway or pretty much free by this time next year. If y'all don't mess up, I don't know about Georgia and, and Florida, y'all might still be in the dark, but we're trying to get out. <laughs> we're trying to get out in LA and California. I can't do another, I cannot do another year lockdown. I, do I didn't think, I didn't, I mean, look at the fact that we are right back to a year. Right. It's just, fascinating to me but you know it is what and it now, is march is giving everybody ptsd yeah people are gonna be going through that and that means more people are gonna be just acting up on twitter and or giving us more nudes than we asked for on twitter because <laughs> y'all gotten bored y'all have gotten bored and horny and y'all are really just showing out and i and i, and I understand y'all going through it but you know, <laughs> keep some stuff you can still keep some secrets <laughs> you can still- everything yeah, they're showing you everything these days. I'm like, okay. They'll say, I'm bored, so here's my dick. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, all right. <laughs> so y'all get a new hobby. It's not equal. But okay, so anyway, we're going to get into Aunt May's tea because we have a lot to talk about, um, especially since now we are hearing new Superman news. Not only did the new Superman and Lois uh, show drop, which is getting rave reviews, which I, I haven't watched yet. I'm going to check it out. It does have the 
a very cute guy playing Superman slash Clark. Um, if y'all watch Teen Wolf, he was in Teen Wolf. Um, Tyler Halston, I cannot say his last name, but he is playing a role, his pretty, pretty light blue eyes. Um, but we also have, are hearing that, you know, there is a new reboot in the works uh -huh. with possibly Tanahashi Coates writing. Yep. Uh, so it seems that uh, Tanahashi Coates is going to be writing and producer J.J. Abrams, um, which I'm okay with this, this reboot. Um, I hope it's the start of like some kind of cohesion between the DC and their uh, comic book uh, movies because God love them, but they are just all over the fucking place. And um, I think uh, it's going to be interesting. There's a push to have uh, Superman be black which I know the comic book boys are going to be mad if they they have their way. And some people wanted, uh, what was it, Michael B. Jordan? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so. <laughs> what? Yeah, okay. So here's the interesting thing. So they just cast Supergirl in the Flash movie that is still coming out, apparently. I thought she and was cast... Uh, who did I cast for Supergirl? Because um, I saw somebody else being cast as Supergirl. Um, so I think it's a Latina who... Okay, I think, that, yeah. Uh, let me find her name. And, you know, she's been cast. So I can see what they're... they're you can look at it so many different ways. This is Krypton. Anybody could have been sent to Krypton, from Krypton or what have you. Didn't have to be White Clark. It could have been, could have been anyone. So that's more you can look at it. Um, but yeah, I saw that Michael B. Jordan was someone who was being considered. Can it be done? Sure, it can be done. Um, because there has been, there is a Black Superman and he's been introduced when they have talked about the multiverses. That's been done before. Um, also, there is a Black Island. <laughs> On Krypton, which I'll, you can Google it, look it up. Um, there is a where all the blacks live. Uh -uh, not Chocolate City, not yeah, Chocolate Paradise. It is what it is. Um, it's interesting to look at. You know, we'll put it on our Twitter page. So you kind of take a look. But there is a island just where um, the black Kryptonians lived. So um, what's interesting about that is that's what that could be that, you know, uh, their Wakanda, somebody sent them, somebody from their particular island uh, mm -hmm. to there. So we can see what happens. But if Tahashi is writing, I think it would be good. I think it will be the one of the few times, oh, I, I was going to ask this question, how many times has a Black writer written the top three um, in any form? Um, mm -hmm. So I'll be interested to see how that goes. Because, for example, you know, um, there's been plenty of, of, of black uh, creators writing, you know, you know, Marvel's people. Um, but, um, you know, Tahashi's written, he's gonna be writing Captain America. He's written Captain America. Um, and so we, and Vita has written New Mutants and X-Men and, and so many other characters, Danny Lore as well. But how many black people have written, you know, Superman, Batman, um, and I think 
Dwayne has Dwayne Duffy. I'm saying his name's Holy Dwayne McDuffie. Yeah, he's done. I think he's done Batman or Superman, but how many have done, um, you know, overall, how many of them have really been, you know, writing for these characters? So have somebody really take on this movie, I think it'll be a different approach because I don't really see what the issue has been. Because, you know, you will hear people saying we don't know how to write Superman. I'm like, how hard is it <laughs> to write Superman? You know, he's a good character. He's like basically Steve Rogers, just a little bit more nicer and naive, but. In the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, I don't know what the problem is, but hopefully they will figure out what that will look like. But you're right when they, you know, they, their universe is all over the place and it's very Batman heavy. It's always been very Batman heavy and they really need to flip that. But um, we'll see what this will look like and if they're going to reboot, which they do have new people at the helm over there and um, DC Warner. So we'll see if they will kind of take this up, change some things around. They can do a reboot. I think we've mentioned before, they can do a crisis to where it could be like, okay, we start right. over. Yeah, they can do Henry Cavill. I like them as Superman. Now yeah. the scripts—that's that's a whole other thing. Yes. He didn't have anything to do with that. He was just, you know, trying to knit a sweater for a dead dog, yeah. so to speak. Um, but they could go that route and have two people being cast as Superman, and that would be that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, that that actress, by the way, her name was uh, her name is Sasha Cal. Um, and she's the first Latina Supergirl ever in DC. So we'll, I saw that, did you see that video uh, of her getting the call or uh, it was on Zoom and I think it was, I forgot which producer or director it was, mm -hmm. but he gave her the news and she started crying. She was so ecstatic and happy. It was, it was one of those just feel good moments. Yeah, I, I didn't see it when I check it out, but yeah, it is because you think about that role has been traditionally some blonde white person <laughs> playing that, mm -hmm. and now they're willing to take this chance. Of course, it's going to be the bros who are going to be hurt, which is funny because they probably never even read Supergirl comics. Um, but again, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you know Latina, black, whatever. It is a hero. I think we need to kind of be open to all those pieces, but hopefully. You know, with these changes and with Ava over there, things can kind of get in some order because with Legends of Tomorrow, they have featured two different Supermans in one show. Um, and, you know, they had the guy who played, he plays, I think, Adam in the show, but he played, Brandon Ralph actually played Superman in the movie. He ended up playing Superman for another another time. Um, and then Tyler was also in a plane Superman as well. So they can mix that up. It could be some type of weird multiverse version of Superman. Um, so anything is possible. I think that they can really, if they sit down and really think it through, it can happen. Right. I think they need to get all of these uh, chefs at the kitchen, so to speak, and mm -hmm. streamline their process. Yes. Also, Kind of speaking of that, y'all know within about a couple of weeks, we're going to get the Snyder Cut of, you know, Gone with the Wind slash Justice League. We're going to get that version coming. Four up. fucking hours. Like, who does he think he is? Cecil B. DeMille? <laughs> like, 
And if you don't know who Cecil B. DeMille is, go watch some of them long ass movies <laughs> from back <laughs> in the day. You know, yeah. Um, you know, they did reveal the Joker. Joker's going to be in this movie. They even revealed some of the promos where he looks like Jesus. I was like, okay, everybody, y'all. It's just like a Snack Snyder's like wet dream. And I'm like, did he really have to just blow his load all over this fucking movie? Like, did they just pick up what was left on the cutting floor and like super glued it together and say, okay, that's it, that's it. I mean, I don't know who needs to hear this, but the reason why things were put on the cutting room floor, because it was even it was either doing the most or it just didn't make any damn sense. I mean, after working with an editor, you realize like, yes, that needed to be on the cut. Like once you stop and look at it, it's like that should have been not only in draft, but never probably even written at all. Like mm-hmm. you just, and I remember, you re- you remember back when they was like, they wanted um, Batman to be raped or something like right. that. Right, there was some weird ass prison, uh, men at play type thing like that they wanted batman to be in uh sexually assaulted i was like okay that's this is triggering i know this is not you know bound in public i don't know why they were thinking of that but now they was also thinking of having batman and lois in some relationship i was like so uh, basically some tupac and pig a biggie uh, Batman, as low as his face, Evans, <laughs> and Batman goes say, I, I fucked you, girl. Like, what? What is going on with that? Yes, I was like, you know, if if only you know, producers, directors of color could just fall up like Zach has. It just the fact they even, you know, I feel like DC and the rumor is they was like, you know, let him have this movie because we're about to reboot it all. Let him have it. Um, and that's why I feel like they're going to do, that's what they need to do, but. Right. Y'all, we will, we're going to watch this movie. We're going to watch it. And I might. We are. (laughs) You, you know, you want to see what the mess is. I have to watch one hour at a time, like one hour (laughs) every day or something, because some of the. I will watch The Towering Inferno because it's good. And that's damn that's a damn near three hour movie. I will watch Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor because that's a damn good movie. Uh, the greatest show on earth. Um, but four hours for Justice League. Was it Mildred Pierce? Like three hours? No. Was what? Mildred Pierce. Uh-uh. Mildred Pierce wasn't no three hours. Mildred Pierce was maybe like uh an hour sixty minutes tops. Don't do Mildred like that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do John Crawford like that. Oh, oh her like, ass. There is a Instagram dedicated to showing clips of her being just dramatic in these movies. Have you seen? Um, I know we're going off on a tangent. Have you seen the Queen Bee with her? No. She does. Uh, because you know, old Hollywood is famous for slaps. There's this one scene in a movie that she's going up this staircase and then this woman enters it and she, uh, the woman starts, uh, so somebody has gotten engaged and Mildred, uh, Mildred, uh, Joan Crawford's character is pissed off about it. 
And the other woman is talking about it. She's like, oh, I'm just so happy that they got engaged. And Jones' character just hauls off and slaps the shit out of her and just walks up the steps. <laughs> and then the woman just starts crying. I'm like, girl, you're such a bitch. I need to see it. I love a good slap scene. Let's see, I'll have to let's see. Let me find that for you right quick. But yeah, it's Queen B is such a good movie. Okay, because I love a good slap. I love a good moment. Um, but yeah, so you know, Zach Schneider's um, version of Women of Brutal Place will be out in another two weeks. With all these dramatics and all that good stuff. So we will see how that goes. But well, now let's get into, this is our WandaVision time because two episodes have came and gone and everything has happened. Everything has dropped. We've had seven and eight. We have a villain maybe. And I say maybe because I'm not, I'm still not convinced that Agatha is the true big bad in this, but we learned that Agatha, or Agnes is Agatha, and she's been behind us all along. Even gave us a theme song, gave the gays a new drag thing, which is going, which has already had already appeared in drag already. Um, remixes. Thank you, black folks, because if there's one thing we're gonna do, is we're gonna remix the hell out of a song. Yes. Yes, and people already downloading it, playing it. You can get the original song already on Spotify and all that. So it's out there. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I didn't, when I heard the song, I was just laughing. I'm like, they have just acted up. But the fact that song has taken off. Right. A little minute has taken off. No longer than the Jim and the Hologram song has taken <laughs> off. Which is funny because if you think about it, it's almost like a something that possessed with a song about herself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right. out there, um, Catherine Hahn is playing this role, boy. But we found out that Ag um, Agnes is Agatha Harkness, um, who is a very powerful witch, over a thousand-year-old witch. Um, she is um, basically not really behind the creation of that world, but really staring Wanda on. So we learned about that. Um, in episode seven, we also realized that um, Wanda is kind of realizing this is too much. <laughs> it's just right. too much. Had that, what was it? The Modern Family-esque mm -hmm. episode where she was just like, she reminded me of a mom that, like take away all of the, the power aspect of it. She reminded me of a mom that was like, I need a fucking day to myself because I am stressed. I got these kids that are getting on my fucking nerves. The job is getting on my fucking nerves. The husband is not doing what I wanted to do. I got to take the dog to the vet. The car needs a new oil change. I got to go out and get some milk. She reminded me of that kind of mom. Yeah, I had to look at everything. She was just like, you could just tell she was distraught. Even woke up in her costume. That was a that was kind of mm -hmm. funny for you to see that. Yeah. Um, what are some more uh, highlights from episode seven? Um, so we we kind of you know had a moment between Darcy and Vision. Um, you know, Vision realized that something is just really just screwed up. But having Darcy remind him that you know y'all love is real though, regardless of what's really going on. That was mm -hmm. nice to kind of see that and kind of you know real you know, kind of remind people of their relationship that they have. Um, but we also got to see. You got to see Monica really come into play. 
So that that was a great scene. You know, she gave us a little bit of Shaka Khan, I'm Every Woman video when she was running through the field and all of a sudden uh -huh. <laughs> different versions. That's what came in my head. Somebody needs to take that clip and just do I'm Every Woman. Because we saw all the different Monicas uh -huh. in that scene. But we also beginning to learn that every time that she would go through that energy field, her cells are changing. Everything about her is changing. So we saw that happen. Her eyes turn blue, which I was like, uh. She had them uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, burglar <laughs> contacts in. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess we could do that. But. So that was that moment where, um, you know, Wanda was trying to confront Monica and then try to cast her out. But Monica, like, oh, no, bitch. Kind of Funny how the tables right. turn, head ass. Like and did that drop, that drag drop on the ground. <laughs> I was like, right. If you would, if that was a split, I would have just just turned off the TV. But right, Monica over there doing dips. <laughs> and basically said to Wanda, "Who's gonna check me now? Who's gonna check me, boo?" Because she was like, "Come on, we, we can do this." Right. It also reminded me of Vanita Green and and Beatrix in the beginning of Kill Bill, and it was like that little fight. Mm -hmm. She's like, come on, bitch, come on. <laughs> I was like, all right. I always, I love that line. <laughs> no, I love it too, because when you think about it, that's how, that's how it is. You know, we, we've been fighting. It was like, come on, we, could, we, we ain't done. Right. But we had a little moment where uh, we saw Monica, we saw her um, perhaps in her spectrum mode. Um, so that was really interesting and fun to see. Right, because she could detect when she got into, <coughs> excuse me, the, when she went back into the hex, mm -hmm. she can see the waves. Um, I'm not sure what the, what she could see, but she saw something. So um, I, I'm interested to see more of her powers. And like I had said before, I don't want it, I didn't want her to just be a, a name only character. I want to see her powers. So we're seeing some powers. Yeah, we're seeing that. We also saw in the in the in the um after credits that when she was snooping around, um it was Pietro, I think, who was like, Oh, what are you up to? Mm -hmm. So it made me question, well, one thing, um, Agatha didn't bring him into she if whatever she did with him, he's still there. So he's not just some um, phantom. He is still there. And we don't know um, what's really happening with that because we didn't really see that in the next episode, but. This goes into eight, uh, episode eight where, oh, well, let's just go break it down where Wanda, Agatha has the kids over and then Wanda goes to look for the kids Somehow the kids are trapped in the basement, what have you. And uh, Agnes reveals herself. And so in episode eight, um, Agnes uh, talks about these different, uh, I guess this different magic that she has been learning throughout the years. One of them was being trans, uh, transmutation. The other was oh, fuck. I forgot the other ones. One of them involved a cicada, and a cicada has reference because 
uh, back in, you know, how am I trying to say this? A cicada represents transmortive life cycles. So this is directly linked to Wanda, I would say, how she has transformed from where she was as a child and her powers until till now. Um, and also the, the beginning of episode eight, where it looked like, now to me, my opinion, that these witches didn't know what to do with uh, Agatha. Her powers, she was delving into something that she shouldn't have, but she didn't know how to, how to control it. And the witches sensing this power was too much aligned with her. Instead of try, trying to teach her it, they wanted to just kill her. And that didn't work. I think she just, it almost gave me a Morgan Le Fay kind of thing, how she, all of them kind of died like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, a lot of people said that this they didn't like this episode or this episode sucked or yada, yada, yada. Initially, I said I didn't like it, but it felt like it had a purpose. Now that I've rewatched it and looked up more information about it, this episode was necessary. It was a, a sort of calm before the storm. And we needed this background to understand why Wanda is like the way she is. Because what I think the show does a good job of is how people deal with grief. Like take away all of the comic book aspects of it. And this is a person who has lost their parents. They've lost their brother. They've lost their lover and potentially now their kids. And all of that grief, especially in the time of Corona, it probably is sort of therapeutic on how people can, you know, get over like the sudden loss of, you know, life, whether it be, you know, everyday life, um, life uh, lives of lost loved ones, the loss of, you know, just the, the ongoings of daily life, you know, and it's how we deal with grief. You know, we always want to remember people as we, in their best image. We don't want to remember all of the bad. We just want to remember all of the good. And I think the, that show does a, a really good job. And to take it a step further, it deals with how, I don't think this show could have worked with a male lead. You know, I think it's better. It's so much better that a woman is the lead because, you know, oftentimes, you know, women are viewed as too emotional or this or that. So I like that aspect as well. And I know I'm going on a long tangent (laughs) of particulars, but what did you think about the overall episode eight? 
I I loved episode eight because yeah, it did give us an insight of Agatha. Agatha, um, now in the, in the comics, you know, she um, was kind of expelled or, or dealing with issues with New Salem, and that's a whole place of witches. Uh, and so she left because there was issues happening there and, and there's a lot to do with her son and everything else. But it was interesting to see that where they was like, we have to, you know, she has so much power, we're gonna have to get rid of her. But how she ended up taking that power. And it's interesting you bring up Morgan Lefayus because we have, I feel like that as we look at the overall MCU universe and knowing Morgan Lefay has already been introduced, these type of people are, you know, it's, it's very interesting. They are, Agatha is searching for someone who is able to uh, use the, in, who, who can bring up the chaos magic or use this type of magics um, in a way as Wanda has. And so that's why she keeps asking her, what type of witch are you? But Wanda is basically saying, I'm not a witch. Um, somewhat similar to what um, Agatha was kind of going through in the beginning, but the way Agatha is trying to draw that out of her by using her grief, like let's just kind of go through and see where this is coming from. It's very fascinating. But uh, I also thought it was very interesting that when she, and we've mentioned this before, that she was exposed to the Mind Stone. I'm glad they show that clip of her when she was exposed to it and what she was able to see. Now in that scene, we got to see Wanda in her costume based from the comics. Um, which, you know, it was exciting to see that, but it also made me wonder like how much is that Mind Stone put, really plays with what she had or did it trigger her witchcraft to be more? Um, I, I think that image of what she saw is like her, her final form, so to speak. I think that was a, a prelude to what she will look like in the future and how, how she sees herself because Yeah, that's, I, I think that's a prelude to the future, a future Wanda. Yeah. And, you know, Agatha is trying to, I guess I'm, part of me is trying to figure out what is Agatha trying to get? Is she trying to take her power? Or is she trying to see if she's no longer the only one? Because, oh, she's trying to understand who she still is. Because the fact that Agatha was supposedly, was supposed to be destroyed and she's searching for these different types I wonder if she's trying to understand what Wanda is. Now it's been mentioned that Wanda is kind of a nexus being where it's like she is able to really play around with reality in ways that can't that many cannot do. Um, and so that's been mentioned, it was mentioned I think in the last episode about the Wanda and, her, and this nexus of what her powers are. But um, it's interesting because when we saw Agatha, you know, after all of the, you know, going through Wanda's past and what have you, which was really good to see because you got to see um, a lot of what she went through. Remind you, this is two weeks. This is within the two weeks because she lost vision. Her vision was in Paris, fought the, the Black Guard, I've got their names, fought right. them. The Black Order. Yeah, the Black Order. Um, Wakanda got blipped came back, all this is within two weeks. So, or within, no, I'm, I'm wrong. Within two weeks of her coming back, this is all kind of the, the stuff. Um, so, you know, when she went to go see 
um, vision and see that his body is gone and destroyed. And now she says she can't feel you. And that's a playback to in the movie when she was like, I can feel you. And now um, let's talk about that part where she went to see Vision. Now in past episodes, Hayward said that she had broke out, she had broke in and stole his body. Mm -hmm. We know that was a, a outright lie. He, uh, first of all, hey, he got to die, and he got to die really cool. <laughs> because that white man, I know he voted for Trump twice. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you would have imagined her being so distraught and, you know, her grief turning into rage and, you know, her wanting to blow the whole place up. But she just left that after that scene, she didn't take the body and she just left. And I, I think it would have been the easy route for them to go, oh, she's gonna tear up the joint rather than, you know, her just leave on her own accord without visions, you know, CPUs and whatnot. Yeah. So she, and from that, she goes straight to Westview where the reason why she is there is revealed that you know, that's where he, he was, they were gonna build a home together there. And you know, that was just so much for her to handle. And so it just kind of went, her powers went haywire and created that world. But we also realized that she was, she created vision from scratch, literally. Uh -huh. um, it was, she didn't use his body. Um, she created him from scratch. But now it makes me wonder um, a little bit more because this ver this this version of Vision is thinking and feeling on his own where he is having these doubts and everything else. So it's really fascinating how powerful she is, which I think we'll see that in the next episode. But it was very fascinating overall to kind of see how she created that world based on how she used television to cope. And I know many of us, when we were growing up, did that a lot. We watched the TV shows, like, you know, the, you know, uh, Cosby Show or Different World or um, Family Matters or Facts of Life or wh whatever we did, we watched that and kind of got into the characters because that was how we coped with things. Yeah, so especially especially people that, you know, grew up in public housing or had single parents or what have you. Like, we grew up on these shows knowing like that little space, everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the episode of Dick Van Dyke that they were watching was, um, I think it was something, the episode was about a, a walnut or something. Mm -hmm. And that episode was actually the basis for, I think it was that episode, I want to say it's the second episode of WandaVision. The first uh, where there was something outside and I, I know they had pushed the beds together, that was a direct correlation with the that Dick Van Dyke episode. Um, but yeah, that, I had identified with Wanda when she was watching those shows. You know, whatever's going on in the outside world, these shows, kept it at bay, if only for like 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's funny because I know I go, when um, 
there's there's new channels popping up where you can watch old shows again like you know now you mm-hmm. can watch like Alice I used to love Alice as a kid so I'm watching old Alice episodes or now you can watch old prices right I did that literally last week right. I was sit before I moved I was watching old prices right um episodes if you want to call it or you know and I was sitting there like wow I'm really sitting here I've sat here for three hours to watch these. They are hour long, but I, you know, sitting there, I've watched three of them straight in a row. And it's interesting how it does put you in a different place. And it put me back in a place where I would stay with my grandmama's house um, in the summer when my mom was working in the morning. So I had to go and stay over there and we watching, you know, we watching um, Price is Right, you know, and uh-huh. to see, you know, Holly, Diane, and um, oh, I can't think of the other person's name, Diane, Holly, and Janice, the three, the the three <laughs> go-to uh, models. It was like, wow, this is really taking me back, you know. And mm-hmm. so seeing wanted to go through that made so much sense, and all that, you know, greatness of just like using that as a a coping mechanism. But to the it one to be destroyed like that, yeah, that kind of took me off. It it brought me back to, oh, we're not just here to watch them watch reruns mm-hmm. there's an actual story going on over here so when it just blew up and then agatha made the prediction so she was like so you were trapped over here for two days and then this bomb had burst through your house this stark technology so just, uh, just so we're clear this was tony's fault and it didn't blow up she was like you didn't use your powers then or what's going on? And I think uh, Agatha was not so much trying to trigger her again as to more or less talk her through it like a therapist. Mm-hmm. And sure, she had some uh, non medical terms so to speak like she was a little rude about it yes Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day I think Agatha like you said she wants to understand Wanda's powers as much as Wanda wants to understand them too so in a sense Agatha could use Wanda for the big bad at the end because I don't know who that is. It might be Mephisto. It might be some, whoever, whoever it is. I think Agatha is going to use Wanda to help defeat that bad guy. Yeah. I was thinking that, I was thinking that it's, she either needs her help or she's trying to give her tough love (laughs) in some sense. I don't know. But it was interesting to see how Agatha was kind of going at it. But also seeing Agatha um, you know, use her children because if, again, if you go back to the comics, that, that's how her children was always a trigger for her. And, and to see that where she's basically choking her kids, it was like, okay, she's trying to push something out of her. What is that? But I did like the conversation that her and Vision had about grief and how grief is the preservation of, of love and um, how it's in a lot of ways, it's you're grieving because of the love that you have for someone or what have mm-hmm. you. It was a very good uh, statement 
but now it does make me wonder what Hayward is up to because what is he up, you know, what is he doing? And, 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 and what was revealed at the very end was the white vision. They, he has recreated vision and in the comics, um, when they did that, he was, he didn't have any memories of who he was. Um, and he was very cold and calculated. He was basically a cyborg. Um, when Wanda was trying to go to him, he actually slapped her. Um, Cause he was like, who are you? Like, how dare you, you know? And mm. so it makes me wonder that Hayward is trying to make this a weapon for what and for whom. And it could be kind of like how the mutants, you know, X-Men, you know, they try to make a weapon against these superpower beings because he, he already kind of revealed that he's kind of a, like a Nimrod type yeah. thing, yeah. So he's okay. kind of revealed that, you know, he's not a big fan of these superpower people. So this might be his answer of, you know, dealing with that if he's able to recreate the vision. So, you know, this episode was a lot of stuff. It really revealed some, another thing that they kind of touched on in, the, in episode seven is the book. And we're trying to figure out is the book Darkhold, um, which has already been introduced in the, in the uh, MCU through Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, if so, if it is Dark Hole, then it will make sense because they're about to get into Moon Knight. And also Dracula is gonna be in this universe as well. Dracula has a lot to do with Dark Hole. So it will all make sense if that book is Dark Hole. And what Dark Hole is, if you don't know, it is a grimoire of very vast magics and, and spells. Um, so if they are using that, and I think it was somewhat mentioned with Morgan Le Fay, they all may have something to do with this book and that may play a role in the next Doctor Strange movie. So it is something else. There is a rumor that Doctor Strange may be in the final episode. There's also a rumor that uh, Professor X was supposed to be in the, uh, the next episode. I was like, I, will highly, I highly doubt it was going to be Professor X. Yeah, the people are saying why we may see other beings, other characters in the last is because something will be, something will be expressed, whereas her magics just go really haywire, what have you, and they'll have a moment where certain people are like looking around, like, what is that? What is that feeling? And we saw- Like, um, like on the, uh, remember on the, the Dark Phoenix saga, yeah. where yeah. Uh, Phoenix left, uh, left from the, uh, the earth and Dr. Strange felt it, Thor felt it, I think the Kree felt it, um, so yeah, we might get some kind of, uh, imagery of that. We still don't know who, uh, Monica's, her, they've never hinted, well, they've hinted at this person, this contact that Monica had, but mm -hmm. they never explicitly explained or told us who that is. So that's, needs to be revealed. Yeah, and also Darcy and who she's going to be working with. Um, mm -hmm. She also mentioned that she has somebody that she knows. So this is going to be a lot happening in, I guess, the last episode. Um, it's supposedly going to be a longer episode, so we'll see what that looks like. But there was a lot that came out of this. Um, and, you know, again, this is interesting because you know, we now have magic in the MCU. So what's going to happen with magic? Now, I mean, we, we kind of had it. Doctor Strange, but it was a little bit different with Doctor Strange, but it's what we saw with these witches. Um, it's like but a supporting I, character. Now yeah. it is the character. Yeah. 
so it's gonna be fun to see what happens. So, you know, y'all, we're gonna be, and I know for myself, I'll be up uh, at midnight again, you know, waiting to see- Three o'clock over here, but. <laughs> <laughs> Wait to see what happens, but yeah, this is, it's just getting good. And, you know, I'm really excited for what MCU has to offer. The fact, this is how they do their TV shows. Um, you know, this was a good thing to put it on Disney Plus. Um, yeah. Then right after that, we got Falcon and um, um, Winter Soldier. So we're going to see what type of world they're going to be getting into. But they're going to have to bring it because yeah, WandaVision has knocked it out of the park. Very true. Very true. Well, I guess that's all that we have on the tea table. We we do I have, have one more, one more oh, thing. Yes. Uh, so. Earlier, I was talking about Avatar, The Last Airbender. Uh, so a while ago, Netflix mentioned they were going to do a live action series oh, with the, the series, uh, a live action series with the creators, I, Michael DiMartino and, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Brian Konzetsko. So that fell through because I'm not sure why it fell through, but it was some bullshit. Uh, so those the the creators left, uh, and Netflix said they were still going to go along with this live action series. So fast forward to this past week, it is announced that there's a new studio entirely based around the universe of Avatar: The Last Bender and The Legend of Korra, the subsequent series after the events of Avatar, and. Uh, the series creators, the original creators, are going to be creating new content, spanning uh, new series, new movies, uh, different ideas and whatnots around this universe that they've created. And this is really a really cool thing because they have so many things that they could pull from. They could uh, have a new uh, avatar. They can tell stories. Um, about old uh, avatars. It's whatever, basically they have a whole new sandbox to play in. And I'm really excited about this. Uh, and I said, like I said, I think you would really like Avatar because it's so, it's more, even though it's geared towards kids, you know, like Jim was or like X-Men, there's many elements that speak to us as especially grown-ups and now like we're living in during this pandemic makes you think of things that that should be more important than you know say two years ago we weren't even thinking about yeah, I, I saw that news and, and, you know, people were excited that you, people were excited. Some people were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> but, you know, people were excited and all that good stuff. And I think if, they, if it's done right, um, it can be a hit all over again. It's, it'll be a new generation watching. because I know a lot of people from the past, you know, they still holding on to it. Um, and so we'll see. We'll see. It's a perfect time to bring in new characters yeah. or new new viewers into the universe. Um, and then also you can hire actual Asian voice actors. You know, they have to they can be unknown, completely new in the industry, and nobody would know the difference. 
So yeah, that's let's see what this brings. Um, hopefully they'll keep it the way it's been, meaning that we're not trying to add in, <laughs> that we're not trying to make it, you know, we have to put in the white people to make it watchable, don't have to do that at all. Right. Um, can discover other cultures. So hopefully they will kind of do that if they want to play around with that. Because again, you, what you were saying is you can explore the avatars in so many different ways. Or if they met other avatars or different types. So mm -hmm. yeah, so this, this sounds like this would be kind of fun and kind of new to keep the series going. Right, exactly. All right, y'all. Well, we do have our next segment coming up. So, you know, Stay tuned, come back, go get some water and come on back. <laughs> okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. Uh, we have a really awesome interview this episode. Uh, our guest, he's written for music for more than two decades. You might've seen his works in the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, Vibe, and a host of other publications. He's also the author of award-nominated uh, book uh, biography about Luther, the life and longing of Luther Vandross. Please welcome to Mechashine, Mr. Greg Seymour. Hey, <laughs> thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show. And today, I think we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics. Um, you might see me on the timeline or whatever, talking about music, specifically disco. Disco, I mean, I grew up on disco with all of these great artists. Um, and we're just gonna have a conversation about the music, the genre, what it means to us. We're also gonna get into some of our favorite songs and bands. Um, and we'll just take it from there. Sounds great. All right. So my first question is, how would you define, how would you define disco to our audience? See, why are you going to start off with a real, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it really depends. Cause like, you know, you have disco, disco is, you know, you can't deny it as a specific cultural phenomenon, mainstream cultural phenomenon. You know, anybody that watched Drag Race and their little disco thing, you know, there was a moment when a certain aspect a certain thing that was branded as disco took over mainstream popular culture. And so we think of things like Saturday Night Fever and um, some of those songs. But there's a way, especially from like a Black queer perspective, there's a way to think of disco as just a continuum of dance music that has always been played in some form in the places where um, gay men have congregated. And never stopped playing and sort of sort of this mainstream disco thing was just a moment so to me i just kind of think of it as a continuum in the um in a strain of dance music from you know more danceable motown stuff in the 60s and 70s and then you know you had this period of course where people were where maybe people that weren't dance artists were deliberately making things for the dance floor when the mainstream was interested. But then coming out of that, you had um, it it kind of changing forms. I was about to say mutating because we were talking about the X-Men earlier. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, just kind of changing forms and becoming house um, in Chicago, becoming techno in Detroit, and then just kind of um, continuing that strong vocal 
kind of gospel tradition in places like New Jersey and New York. So I, I, it's just it's just kind of to me, you know, as a black gay man, it's just kind of one stop on the continuum of dance music that I think has um, really been, you know, it's kind of cliche to say the soundtrack of our lives. But when you think of the fact that um, gay people often the only social social spaces for gay people at one point in time are like bars and clubs where music was played, mostly danceable music, you know, dance music really is a soundtrack of our gay right. lives. So, um, you know, so I kind of see it as just kind of a moment in that. I think a lot of that's coming apart, unfortunately, but, um, you know, certainly for my generation, that is, you know, that's the way I see disco. I always saw, cause I was, you know, I'm in my fifties now, but you know, like I wrote a um, elementary school book report on disco, you know, like I always saw that as some place that I felt like I would be accepted even before I was aware, you know, specifically that I was gay. Right. I know you didn't want that long. <laughs> you were looking oh, for yes, like a did. little cute I answer. <laughs> a little sound bite. <laughs> I gave you the extended mix. That was All right. You gave <laughs> us the 12 inch. I gave you the 12 inch. <laughs> now, is there, um, is there a difference between disco like regionally? Is there like a, a Philadelphia sound versus a Chicago sound versus a, a New York sound? Well, I think there's there definitely sound. I mean, there's definitely certain sounds. Like, there's definitely was a Philly sound, you know. And I think during the time when disco was at its height and was really developing, I think it's probably safe to say the Philly sound was the major sound of inspiring disco. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. you have like the big orchestra, you have um, MFSS. MFSB, which was like the big backing band for a lot of the Philly international hits. And, and those were, those just kind of set the tone. So even if you think of like corny disco records, they have a lot of those elements that the um, Philly international records had, they're just done badly, you know what I mean? But, right. <laughs> but you know, if you think of like the horns and just that whole orchestral feeling, um, that's when you get that's where you really, so I think that kind of defined that moment. Um, then there's certain places like Jersey has always been just your divas, your like deep house, vocal, based, somebody singing their ass off, some gospel something, you know, that's always Jersey. Um, so yeah, so I think they're regional things, um, but I don't think it's kind of like, it's not as regional as something like hip hop, you know, where you really can say, oh, the West Coast sound, the East Coast sound, the mm -hmm. Miami bass sound, you know, the whatever sound. Right, right. Yeah. But like, just for like me, you know, growing up in DC, my, I just have a very much like an East Coast dance music aesthetic. You know, so like I'm very, because I live close to Baltimore and Baltimore has its own thing with like Alternate and the Basement Boys and just, you know, the Jersey and just, um, I would always be in New York. So just like whatever was playing on New York radio, that's very much how I, so I have a lot of, um, you know, because what came after disco um, 
is what people, it wasn't really called this at the time, but it's just convenient to call it like that now, but what people call like the boogie movement, you know, sort of like the Evelyn Champagne Kings, I'm in love and that whole kind of feeling, um, which was kind of like present in other parts of the country, but these were like huge radio records in that kind of mid-Atlantic region. So that I think was different um, too. Do you remember your first disco album that you bought? Um, not, well, kind of, sort of, like, I know it was, um, yeah, I do. I think, well, did I buy that album? Because it was the kind of thing, like, my, my parents and my family always encouraged, um, me it with music right and like these were back in the days i mean this would be considered child abuse now but these were back in the days like when you would go to the mall and like if your parents or your grandparents had something to do and they knew that you'd be good at a store or something like that they would just give you like hey take a few di- and just leave you at that store and then they'd go do what they needed to do and meet back up with you you know what i mean so for me, they knew that they could just leave me in a record store and I'd be good. They could do their whole grocery shop, everything, get everything they need to do and go to the, but they would usually only give me enough for like a 45. So I have a lot of memories like buying 45s and stuff like that. But when you start getting into the disco era, then you had 12 inches. So I kind of had to like, mm, like save up for that. And it really had to be that version that like, you, I heard on the radio and I knew wasn't on my seven inch. And then I would kind of, and then like to buy a whole album, that was, you were committed. You know what I mean? That was, you're talking about getting into some allowance. You might have to do some chores. You know, I mean, it was some serious. So I think what I, I do, I probably have something before this, but I do distinctly remember buying the 45 for He's the Greatest Dancer, which is funny now with me, um, because I tease Luther when I talk to him. I'm like, you are so loud on that record. But anyway, so like I bought the, <laughs> the 45 of um, He's the Greatest Dancer and I was obsessed with that song. And, you know, then time passed. And then I heard like We Are Family on the radio. And I'm like, uh-oh, it might be time for an album commitment. So I knew, so I don't, mm-hmm. I definitely know that I got that um Sister Sledge album. So that's one I remember probably wasn't the first. The other thing is that, you know, albums growing up were kind of like birthday and Christmas gifts. So although I could buy like 45s of my own, I would always have like a whole list of stuff that I would get. People even now only get me music. Um, So I would get a lot of stuff for Christmas. So I remember like one being obsessed with um, the Joan girls, the Jones girls. And like, Mm -hmm. I know I got that album for one Christmas. So just things like that. Wow, that was a good question about what your first one was. Um, sadly, my first disco <laughs> album was Disco Mickey. <laughs> hey, you have to have a start or something, you know? Yeah, it was the first one that my parent, my mom bought me. So I, I can remember that one right after that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's so weird to think about that. Um, so Craig, in your opinion, why do you think disco caught on? And you kind of mentioned a little bit of this, but why do you think it caught on so fast in the late, kind of the late 60s and then throughout the 70s? I just think it was just that time, you know, it was like gay liberation, women's liberation, you know, um, 
we were going through a lot of economic hard times. And the one thing you can do, no matter how broke you are, you don't have no job, you, have, you know, you probably can scrape together an outfit and scrape together that little cover fee to go to the club and feel right. like a star for that night, no matter what, how your whole life could be falling apart. But like, you can be a star for that night. Um, and it's not even about being a star, but I mean, one thing that I've always loved about going out and that I miss is just, you know, no matter when I would go out, I would feel better. There was always that sense of possibility. Like, what's, what can, you know, you open that door, every the dark, you know, and then you kind of walk through and see the lights. And it's always like, who are you going to meet? You know, the love of your life might be there. You might, or your best friend might be there. Or you might hear a song that becomes the, you, you know, like it, one of the best songs you've ever heard. It's just that sense of part possibility. Like almost always when I enter a club, like my heart starts, you know, not like going up, but just like that. It's just to me, every time I open, I feel like I'm going to a club. I feel like a, there's a sense of possibility. And sometimes we need that in our lives more than others. And um, that's why I think that, you know, a lot of people needed that escape during that particular time. Hmm. Yeah, because we have been going through it. Like uh, we had the, the murders of all of these civil rights leaders, um, you know, like you said, the economic hardships, and then, you know, the gay movement, the women's movement, and everybody was like, oh, shit, we need a break. And, you know, here comes disco. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like mainstream culture needed the break at that point. But like, Black folks have always needed a break because we've always had a foot on our neck. You know what I mean? So like, you go back, there were like rent parties and, you know, you can go back as far or like... Um, Ma Rainey playing in the backwoods somewhere or something like that. Like we've always kind of had outlets to kind of escape and let go, whether it was going to church on Sunday morning or, um, you know, getting happy on Saturday night, or maybe you do both. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Ain't nobody's <laughs> business if you do. But like, so that's why if you think of disco, disco was a continuum in terms of it started. It's just upbeat dance it's just upbeat soul records you know what i mean it's philly international was never they didn't make those records specifically for the disco if anything like um when you think of philly international they um kenneth gamble and um leon huck they were making records sort of for social change that was their big whole thing so that's why you get rec records like harold melvin and blue notes wake up everybody and things like that they weren't really making records just for people especially just for a bunch of white people to put on bell bottoms and do the bump on the that's when that's what not what they were about it became that but you know that's so again that's why i think um the definition of disco becomes different depending upon um the community that you're talking about Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it seems like that Disco's fast rise in popularity was as impressive as its rapid decline. Can you tell some of uh, our audience, what were some of those factors that contributed to that decline? Okay. Well, basically, it just, um, you know, because there was never really an, an investment in it in the first place. And it was kind of like a fad, just like mainstream 
get onto fads when it was perceived as being not cool it they just dropped it and so when that chicago dj had this disco demolition where they burned a bunch of disco records you know and that got a lot of national publicity and everything like that it just became uncool to be associated with disco and just like they do with us you know with black art and stuff like that they just dropped it overnight it wasn't a big deal because they were never that invested in it um in the first place and the really interesting thing you know especially at this moment now when we're looking at like crazy white people at the insurrection and all that kind of stuff i've done a lot of reading about what exactly happened that night of the disco demolition and like some of the people that were um because there were, you know, there were more than just white people were working the door and stuff, and you could get in if you just had a disco record. And there's some people saying, like, wait a minute, this isn't a disco record. This is just a record by a black person. You know, a lot of people mm-hmm. weren't bringing disco records. They were just they were bringing like Stevie Wonder records and just all sorts of records. It became this burning of just um, that was much more about disco that really went to the heart of what they were scared of. of is just the um, growing influence of black culture, you know, and probably the growing population of black people and the power of black people just in general. And so they were reacting against that. So, you know, white people do they, so they just stopped playing. Right. You know, and it wasn't like there was nothing else to play. Olivia Newton-John was ready, you know, there's tons of white people that could get on the radio, you know, so right. it just started like that. But the interesting thing about it is, um, you know, there's just so many different ways to think about it. So then, the mainstream got out of that, but then at the same time, since um, the major record labels weren't really interested in dance music anymore, you had the independent black labels that had been kind of stripped of all their artists once Disco had gotten popular. You had the resurgence of them. So you think of things like Sugar Hill Records, you know, mm-hmm. really came about as disco was declining for the major labels to be interested but they popped off and then we get rappers delight and then we get a whole new you know genre and we get yeah and and that also and you think of all the and when hip-hop started all a lot of those were independent labels too so it's, it's just really you know just it's like with history, it really just depends upon, it's so hard to say if something was positive or negative because it really just depends upon the lens of which you're looking at it. And um, for as, and you know, like for me, I just as a young, you know, I guess we're talking about like 79 or something. So I would have been like 10. Um, I didn't know no, nothing about a disco backlash, you know, <laughs> like just on my radio station and everything like that. There was still a beat. There was still everything like that. And then a couple of years later, you get freestyle coming in and Shannon and, and this and that. And then so or like I said, even the the, the boogie movement, like I still had as Evelyn Champagne King. You know, I've been thinking about you. You know, <laughs> people mm-hmm. were still coming through with dance stuff. So I don't know that I perceived the break. I think, again, it depends upon how you defined disco and white people probably saw a difference in um what they were listening to and you know the little disco dance and people who had like disco dancing lessons in the suburbs you know little businesses like that they probably felt it but um you know just black radio it's just as a person listening to black radio i didn't think there was much of a difference but you know interesting um there's a book about 
1984 that is that goes into a lot of the radio history and it talks about how um well, gosh I can't think of the name of the book um can't cancel down cancel down and um it's it goes a lot into like how radio stations deliberately stopped playing black music and just how things even into things like how rock stations became defined as only playing white artists and not you know black artists even when they were making rock music so so just things like that you know Mm -hmm. and i fully believe like this backlash of disco was attributed to homophobia and all of that this growing number of oh people might be or people are gay in our community or whatnot and so in order to you know squash that down let's you know tell them that the majority of these cis white people are not going to have that in their community so it was I mean I didn't I guess I'm the youngest of the three of us here but learning about that and seeing how racist and sexist and homophobic the people were when they had this uh, death to disco movement in the early 80s and this backlash is interesting and it's we've always seen it you know we saw it back in like the Motown days when you know those black artists were trying to get on the radio or there's a even in you know if you've seen Dreamgirls the play or the musical you know everybody's trying to get this payola, you know, or whatever. Step into to the get bad their... side. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to see, like, the these themes come up again in Black culture and especially in Black music. Yeah, and I guess the thing about it is, you know, if you think about disco, a lot of people that were making disco were gay. A lot of the audience was gay people definitely knew that there was like a gay element to it and that's what they were reacting against. But like the face of disco was really like black women, you know? So mm-hmm. you literally had this entire baseball field burning records with black women's faces on it. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's, um, the, I think the homophobia was definitely there. It was definitely implied. Um, but like, when you're thinking of art, they were burning Gloria Gaynor records and they were burning Diana right. Ross records and things like that. So, right. And I don't understand people that burn their shit. Like, I don't, I mean, you know, like, yeah, if it's like a, just like when those people, what was the reason? Oh, I guess the Colin Kaepernick and you saw all these like, burning the, the jerseys and whatnot. Burning their, you know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, stuff costs too much. I'm sorry. Like, you know, I'm not burning. I might. I don't know, you know. Flip it for a profit on eBay, but I'm saying that's just a that's that's like a white thing. Um, that's, that's... I, like I remember, I used I was because I was a music critic at Atlanta's Journal Constitution. I was like, um, this was around the time that the Dixie Chicks um, crit- criticized the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I would be watching these white people destroy their Dixie Chicks album. I'm like, you know, you still like those songs, you know, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that <laughs> those songs are still okay. You really just gonna sit here and like bulldoze over them so it is crazy they still they are still the dixie tricks are still owed an apology yeah so so a lot of people Mm -hmm. yeah so disco has transformed now into you know house and edm and techno 
Um, and why do you think that is, um, why do you think that is still kind of given that appeal? Why do you think it's something that still kind of is influenced by disco? Well, I think what happened is like with a lot of black culture, it's always been more appreciated overseas than it has here. So like in Europe, they didn't know anything about a disco backlash. They So if you think about it, um, young white people growing up on that music, they just kind of continued doing it. And then that's where that you got kind of like the EDM stuff. And that's where you get all of these um, sort of DJs that became popular like in the last decade or so coming from um, Europe and being kind of proud of that tradition where we kind of went against that tradition. And I think, you know, in, um, I don't know how it was represented necessarily, but there was definitely a moment when like, you know, black culture got real like hard, you know what I mean? That was part of hip hop. So that was kind of a rejection of the sort of gender fluidity uh, that disco that dance music brought even to black music you know what I mean it was sort of a thing where I think um overseas they just don't care because it was never really associated with um you know with race the way we define it in this country or anything like that so you just got a bunch of white boys playing around with their computers and stuff and next thing you know you have the David Guetta's and the Calvin Harris's and you know it's you and it's just like kind of another thing you know it's sort of like the disco boom that they said happened last year with the Dua Lipas and the um Kylie Minogue's and the mm -hmm. Jesse West it's like where are the you know black women were the face of the like where are the black women in this and where are the black people behind the scenes even in the um those records like I really like I think Tua Lipa did like a remix record where she brought in a lot of like old school remixers like Masters at Work and um Mr. Fingers and stuff like that so she um you know they probably got a little bit of coin from that but it's really has become another form of music that um I don't know to say we, we not like we've let go of but we've kind of you know it's I don't even want to say take it over because the thing about black culture too is it's always been forward looking, you know? So like, while at the same time, it's a shame that, you know, white people took over rock and roll and more white people are listening to blues and stuff like that. But we, we made hip hop, you know what I mean? So it's like, we're always making something brand new. Um, so it's just, it's just um, one of those things. I think the thing that I would like is for us to move to at a cultural point is for black people that are at the forefront of culture to get the flowers at the time that they, you know, to be acknowledged as innovators and be acknowledged um, that way without so much time passing. I think that that would, if we can get to that point as a culture, I think that that would be good, but we see that we can't, we can't even give Beyonce a, an album of the year Grammy. So we see that we're still not at that point. Do you know what I, I mean, mean? At this point, like. At this point, I wouldn't want one if I was her. You know right, what I mean? I'm like, you keep it. I'm making it into some fucking earrings or something. Like, <laughs> it's just like. <sighs> but see, it's all the same continuum. To me, it's all the same thing. You know, it's about, it's about like, um, 
there is something very hard for it under white supremacy to acknowledge um you know black excellence in the moment you know it's kind of it's less threatening when it's in the past but Mm -hmm. um just acknowledging it in the moment that's to me if we can get to that place that would be that would be a real change you know it was just like those the nominees for the um the rock and roll hall of fame came out and tina turner was on it shaka khan some of these people that in my head should have been already on there and i'm like well why I, I, even though these artists are not dead, why are they not already giving their flowers now? Like Shaka Khan should have been in there. Rufus should have been in there. Tina should have been in there. And I'm like, um, like what? what's the holdup? Like y'all gonna and, give it over to like, no offense to Kate Bush, but like they're probably gonna give Kate Bush in, a, uh, in there before Shaka. Like it blows my mind. Not- yeah, no, and I kind of got in a little bit, like, people gave me some flack on social media because I did this um, podcast that just talks about who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I was talking about LaBelle, and of course, I feel like LaBelle should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but at the same time, as a 50-some-year-old Black man, I don't give up about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, do you know what I mean? Right. So, like, so there's a part of me that's like, yes, that's very important, and that has to happen and everything like that, but, like, sometimes I can't really come from my soul in making this defense that we need to be acknowledged by a system that is inherently denies our worth. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's an ambivalence. It's like, yes, Shaka Khan definitely deserves to be in the Rock of Roll Hall of Fame, but like Shaka Khan is all, already so much bigger than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will ever be. Do you know what I mean? So I have a hard time just articulating. I have a hard time getting worked up about people being in the Hall of Fame just because I don't respect the basic tenets of that. Do you know what I mean? Because but if we're really talking sense. about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we're really like, it should have been nothing but we shouldn't even be getting we should be maybe thinking about getting around to white people by now. And it's what been in it's been in the 20 years because if mm-hmm. we're really talking about Hall of Fame and people that have contributed to stuff and you have to be there are a whole lot of there are people that were just shouting in fields rhythmically. You know, there are people that were just mm-hmm. whatever there are a whole, you know, hundreds of black people that if we're really talking about who were at the roots of rock and roll, and we would not even have rock and roll without these people. We'd, we'd, be, we'd barely, we'd be thinking, oh, maybe the Beatles should get in by now. You know, maybe they did enough. Because <laughs> we would have had to acknowledge so many <laughs> Black people before we would mm-hmm. even get around to any white people. But that's not the way it is, you know. That's true. That's very true. And I'm glad you mentioned LaBelle because I feel like what they did, just thinking about it, what they did at the time is what I feel a lot of people you know, stole from today. Like, I feel like a lot of things they did um, with the outfits, you had Nona's writing, mm-hmm. um, Patty's voice. Like, I have all of Bell's albums. And so I remember just feeling so, not emotionally drained, You, but just like, I feel like I was in this journey that I don't really get anymore from any of these artists. Like, you don't really get the journey they they put into the music the, and, and the way they did that music. So... Hey, listeners, if y'all have never, I know you've heard of Lady Marmalade, but if you have not listened to 
any of their stuff, I tell you right now, go on Spotify or Apple Music and just give yourself four hours just going through all of their stuff. Play the whole discography, you know, because especially because I think people will be familiar with a lot of those early, a lot of the cover songs and the early things and then just go all the way through. And, you know, I think I'm so glad you said that because part of the problem that I was having, because I did the show and then I didn't realize that they had criteria for who they thought would be put in. And so one of their criteria was like the influence. And so I could say, yes, LaBelle has been influential, but then at the same time, nobody's trying to write a whole album about a bird. Like, you know, their album Phoenix is this whole sort of, it was going to be a Broadway show. It's this whole thing about rebirth and everything. It's, it's a real concept album. And, even when they would perform it, they would have, you know, Patty would come from the sky and all this kind of stuff and just really this grandeur. But like you said, it was all um, based around Nona's vision of society and how things can be and, and very Afrofuturistic in terms of um, not just placing Black folks in the future, but also giving a vision of what like a Black feminist future would be. And so when I'm thinking, have they been influential? Well, I had to think like, well, who in the world is doing that now? Like I can think of people like Joy, you know, who definitely kept LaBelle um, alive and keeps that kind of spirit alive. But really they're sort of singular in that they made this moment and no one has definitely kept the LaBelle spirit alive, but you know, Patty's kind of, and in a good way, I'm not saying take names of a pen, but she's just become everybody's favorite, you know, um, sweet potato pie cooking auntie you know <laughs> and everything mm-hmm, like right. that where labelle itself as a band is just so revolutionary and i would say if you we might disagree i mean i would say i would play if you play, if you play two labelle albums today which you should i would go with um pressure cooking and phoenix probably i will go with huh because i would say chameleon Oh, Chameleon is a good one. Um, and I would say, see, Pressure Cooking was the last one I got. And I felt that. But Nightbird was the first one that just kind of, that one was a, it was a different experience I had with that one. Okay. I think it was because I was going through, you know, issues with a boy and um, some of the songs. <laughs> I mean, because some of the songs on there, you know, you think about, um, you know, I think it was, um, you know, I can't remember, the, I, it's not the title, I'm not even gonna say the title, um, but it's more of the, well, when they talk about, you know, you come like the, come, like the, like the pouring mm-hmm. rain, that whole feeling of what that was, was really amazing. But if you go back to- Have some you ever of, heard Joy's version of that? No. Oh, I'll send it to you. Okay. But I know if you go back to some of that earlier work, um, I love, I really love like, when they did um, We Won't Be Fooled Again, but I also love, um, um, not is I always, well, of course I love, it, you know, Isn't It a Shame, but um, Ain't It Sad It Is All Over. That was also really, really emotional. So I, it was, but at the time I was going through stuff 
That it just hit me. You're bringing everybody else into your personal. Like you're, you're talking about. We're trying to talk about the music here. You're taking us down memory. <laughs> I know it's true, but it's funny. I mean, LaBelle could do that. That's why yeah. I really want people to pay attention to it. But I but, guess I like um I like pressure cooking because of um the revolution will not be televised because yeah. that's just so you know in your face. And um, going on a holiday, which was actually um, co-written by Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. And then I love Can I Talk With You Before You Go to Hollywood? Because yeah. it seemed like every Black band in the 70s mm-hmm. had that Don't Get Big Headed song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, or like Don't Get Caught Up in L.A. song. Like Gladys had Midnight Chain to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Rufus had Hollywood. Rufus had Hollywood. Yeah. And then yeah. they have Can I Speak To So that's just kind of part of that. Um tradition but labelle will definitely get in like the you know it's um yeah i mean people just don't i I think a lot of especially modern listeners like you just don't realize how a group can really have such a vision and carry that through on so many albums and you know just black gay people just because of the way that it just opened up so many possibilities and it was just so different and so artistic that's why they had such a black such a huge black gay following and everybody would wear silver to the um concerts and show up in like silver jock straps and all this kind of stuff so um it was a moment you know i i always i think i even tweeted nona one day i was like i wish that that she could make because she's worked on broadway before mm-hmm. um, and i remember she had a show when i moved to new york she had a show and I can't remember. I don't was know, that I don't blue know. or something? Blue? I wh- I think it was. Wherever the one that had Felicia Rashad in it. Yeah, I think that. I think, yeah. So, you know, I always feel like that LaBelle's album, you can take any of the albums and almost make a musical base just from those alone. So, Well, Phoenix was supposed to be a musical. If they, if yeah. they hadn't, if, you know, if they hadn't, I think that was around the time Patty got burned. I'm actually working on a Nightbirds book. So that's yeah. going to be out. Um, that's like my next project. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. But you know, it's interesting. And, and I sometimes feel like people should just like, you know how like people make that 28 days thing, you know, to change a habit or something. Like, sometimes I think people just should stop playing certain songs. You know, <laughs> if an artist is so, if you find yourself needing to play Lady Marmalade, just like, okay, well maybe you can play it too, but just force yourself to play like, two other songs from that artist that you don't know because black artists more than anything get stuck in that kind of like people think that these people are one hit wonders but they're not one hit wonders they're only one right. hit wonders it because of the way they've been framed by the mainstream so like people mm-hmm. play denise williams let's hear from the boy don't realize that she had like a string of r&b hits you know and there are other things out there and so i think you know that's that's the Craig Seymour challenge. If I'm putting something, you know, play your familiar hits, but just like you know, play like right. a, a popular other, song is yeah. not necessarily a band's best song. I'll say exactly. I'll go to the grave saying that because um, let's just take uh, I'll just take Rufus for instance. Um, I can go through a host of their songs, and some people have not even heard of it. I uh, like. Circles might be a good song for them, but we can go to Please Pardon Me, we can go to Hollywood, we can go Stop On By, we can go like through all of it, or Street Player, or Stay. Um, 
actually, that's one of my favorite bands ever. But no, well, Shock is my like, favorite art. Shock is my favorite. That Shock was the first. I mean, that was the first. Um, like, tell me something good was the first single that I remember buying. Family members have told me I had other things, but I remember seeing, and I remember having it, and I remember when they appeared on Soul Train. And being so, because I thought the sound was so big. I thought like Rufus and Shaka Khan, I thought they were two separate people. And it was like a duet. I thought they were like Peaches and Herb. Right, right, right. (laughs) So, you know, that was like a huge moment. And then I just always, and I think it's just like, again, I think it's um, as gay people, when we grow up and we don't have a word for why we're different and we don't understand that. And I think especially like for, um, I think for black gay people, because like I grew up with all the skills for kind of deal, recognizing and understanding racism, you know, just coming up in a black family, like that was very um, clear to me, but I didn't grow up with any sort of understanding of what it meant to feel different um, in terms of my, you know, just in terms of my sexuality and everything. So I think I was always drawn to people that were kind of seemed like they were outside of the boundaries or something. And Shaka, not only did she visually look like she's outside of the boundaries, but just heard the sound that she made was just always Mm -hmm. so large and just full of possibilities. And um, yeah, she's just always been the kind of, sort of guiding light, you know, in terms of what I, just in terms of how I view everything. She's just, you know, the- Right. I just, I just love, I love that sound, that, that voice that- Yeah. Like there are some people, some black artists, like, like Shaka, like Randy Crawford, like Patty, like uh, Candy Staten, that you, once you hear like that voice, to me, that's iconic. Like, some of these mm-hmm. new girls are not touching that kind of sound. Like if you put on the, a record, they're like, oh, that's that's Randy Crawford or, oh, that's uh, Linda Clifford. You, like you can mm-hmm. understand a, a voice like, like that. Some of these girls right now, and some of these artists are not, they're not touching what was, and I don't think they ever will. You know what's interesting about what you just said? I think that I've never thought of it about another reason why I like Shaka, but like you mentioned, like Candy Staten and stuff like that. And you have a lot of Black artists, or even you think of like Aretha, um, that you hear certain traditions and certain regions in their voice. Like you hear the church in Aretha, you hear, you know, kind of Southernness in Candy Staten and stuff like that. I think one thing that Shaka was, and I was always like a sci-fi fan, you know, younger and stuff like that. And Shaka just sounds like sound, you know what I mean? Like she doesn't really have, you know, of course she's from Chicago, but there's not a real Chicago way that she sings. It's just kind of like this, just this broad, you know, kind of sound that kind of conjures to me like outer space or just like all sorts of po- possibilities mm-hmm. almost like a superpower almost like you would imagine like the sound that a um you know um well dads are probably would have made that kind of sound but just just a sound that like if a super you know <laughs> could make a sound like that would really be powerful like to me that would be like shaka's voice you know mm-hmm. that's yeah i never now that you say that like yeah it's it's almost as if you could put her sound to 
Afrocentricity in the 70s. Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it, I can see her her voice as a super a superpower and like an image. I know this is weird, an image of a voice for that kind of movement. Yeah. That's that's so powerful you say that. I, I do think that it, it's like it's almost like her voice embodies sort of um like a politics, a political like a polit it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense, but in a way it it kind of embodies that sort of stuff more than it embodies um a region where so much stuff embodies mm -hmm. uh, like it, when Shaka talks you can't even tell what she's like sometimes she has an English accent but I don't know I mean, <laughs> she's always coming from some left field you know so she's but but you're right but she's always kind of grounded in that um coming out of the black power movement and um just having that sense of release you know mm -hmm. that I think is probably associated with that era exactly well now <laughs> so you know as we have kind of go through all of the, of the music and all the artists and everything else who would you who would you want to who would you want to see or hear do kind of a, a authentic disco album well, that's interesting um and see i was trying to y'all are really hit me from sideways because i always try to think <laughs> of like what kind of question they ask and i was not expecting this one but you know what i really really like i like um well, I'm a big SZA fan. I love SZA. And I really like the Calvin Harris um, remix of um, Weekend. I think it's called the Funk Wave Mix or something like I, that. Yeah, I think I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, and so I was like, uh-oh, you know, I can hear SZA on something kind of like that. And I think she has that kind of, kind of crazy, f I think she could get with the that kind of disco feel. So I would say... Um, you know, I would I would say I, I would say SZA. Okay. And you know, I've liked other people. Like I think Mary has had some. I think Mary J. Blige. You know, I, I'm a huge Mary J. Blige. I think she's had some good disco moments. Mm -hmm. Um. But other, but for some reason, other people don't seem to like it. So I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't want to put it through it. You know, like her right. song. She released a song, "Only Love," a couple of years ago. That I just it was one of my favorite songs. It's so hot. Um, it um samples "First Choice" and it just went you know nowhere so I, right. like i said i don't want to put her through more, any more changes so i'm not going to bring her up but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think so. that's a good choice good choice okay um so now let's you know uh ping pong back some of our favorite disco songs and bands um and i'll greg i'll let you go first like what are some of your favorite songs from that era um with, okay, my two favorites. These are these are my two favorite disco songs because they embody kind of what I was talking about in terms of that possibility and everything like that. Um, and just I don't know about you all, but like if you're single, don't you always kind of feel like you might fall in love with the love of your life every t if, when you go to the club? Like I do. Maybe it's corny, but I you know there's that possibility. There's, and I have like I have met one boyfriend on a um, dance floor. It was. Picture this. It was the late 1990s. <laughs> and they were playing a mix of Monica the first night. And I look across the dance floor and I'm like, is he looking at me? Oh, you look at me. So, you know, I've had that 
love on the dance floor moment. Mm -hmm. So that's always a so all that to say, um, one of my favorite disco songs is Stelma Houston Saturday night, Sunday morning, because mm -hmm. it tells the whole story of meeting a, a, you know a love on saturday night and um i don't know if the love lasts forever but at least it lasts until sunday morning right so. <laughs> which is sometimes you know you can't always count on that so <laughs> sometimes that's commitment for some people so anyway right. <laughs> i would say thumb easton um saturday night sunday morning and also inner life moment of my life because that's just about like um going to the club and having that moment you know it's the moment of my life um meeting the right person and everything and, and that's again I think I'm always I mean I guess nightlife is almost like a drug for me it's like I'm always trying to look for that fix trying to find that you know mm -hmm. they say the people that you know that deal with addiction they're always trying to find like that first moment that rush that, that rush yeah and yeah. you're kind of chasing that rush and I don't think and so I guess like that is part of going out for me. It's not that bad in that I'm not like going out every day. It's not like I constantly need the rush and everything like that, but I definitely, um, it connects me to sort of like possibility and fantasy and all this kind of stuff, which I really, um, which I really love. Mm -hmm. So those two. <laughs> and favorite group, I would have to say Chic. Um, Favorite yeah. album, I would have to say, um, it's this out is a compilation album, but it was a compilation album at the time. It's not like, but it's um, called Philadelphia Classics, and that's all remixed by um, a guy named Tom Moulton. So it just has so many great songs like um, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Bad Luck, the whole long Bad version luck. where he starts yeah. talking about, you know, prices going up and he didn't have any money to drink and smoke. And that's <laughs> <yeah>, like, um, <laughs> The Three Degrees Dirty Old Man, which is one of my um, favorite songs. And um, it has, why can't I think of the group? Maybe it's The Intruders, but I'll Always Love My Mama. And it has that, with that extended, with it talking mm -hmm. about their mom. Dad was never around. It was always mom. You know? <laughs> so it has right. that. So I would say that would be my favorite album, Philadelphia Classics um, by various artists on the Philadelphia International label, as they would say, if this was Soul Train. <laughs> I had just randomly um, ran across a song by Sheik, uh, Sao Pablo. Um, yeah. I, I always thought that some of their songs that are instrumental are some of their best songs, like Savoir Faire um, and, and Sao Pablo. But I've always loved Sheik. I think, uh, what's his name? Niles Rogers, I think he is mm -hmm. a genius um, when it comes to arrangement, when it comes to just music in general. And didn't he do a song with Lady Gaga a few years ago? Like, I think um, he did. I think they, they covered, didn't they cover I Want Your Love or something? I think so, yeah. But um, yeah, I, one thing I learned last week, um, and I put it in my new, I have a weekly newsletter, I put it in my newsletter this week, but I had no idea that um, he was thinking about the riff from Sweet Thing when he played the guitar on David Bowie's China Girl. And that oh. it was him. And I, you know, once you, it's one of those things that once you know it, you're like, well, damn, that really is, mm -hmm. <laughs> that does sound like that, but I had no idea, so. Right. Uh, Victor, what are some of your songs, your favorite songs? Oh, wow, that's, cause I, Cause love I can go forever. I can go forever in this. Well, y'all should have been prepared. It's yours question, <laughs> <laughs> y'all's question, so. Uh -oh. 
No. I, I already I have mine. I have like ten, like <laughs> off rip. <laughs> well, some of my favorite disco songs uh, is um, it's weird because it's again it's too many. So I feel like I live in the 70s. Look, too. y'all had me come over here. I had, <laughs> had to pare mine down to two. I'm not trying to hear. I'm trying to hear a couple of songs at best. I, For some weird reason, Party Nights by Natalie Cole sticks in my head. I guess because it was just how she was singing it. How it She was, was going <laughs> off on that She one. was also partying. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but it's very No shade, but... But I just love the way it kind of went. I always loved that. Um... Lolita Holloway can do any song and just make it very dramatic. And I used to love her version of Dreaming. It was hers, but it was, I remember they remixed it, but I had to go back and listen to the original. And I really appreciate their, the original version. And um, artist will be Donna Summer. And I say Donna Summer because what she did, like I, one of my favorite albums by her is Once Upon a Time. And just because it was this whole travel through all different types of music, but she was giving us things that they wasn't doing at the time um, with certain songs like Midnight Shift and um, I Need You Right Now. It was just like, these were kind of what was going to be the future stuff. Um, Yeah. And so that was always my favorite album Um, to the point that I Uh I had to get a print Oh, work. <laughs> that's going in the new apartment? Yeah, that's for the new apartment. Because I okay. love, I have the album over here, but I had to, I love that look. And it was just something about that look that if I was, I, I was, I don't know, I was probably like three when that came out. But I think if it, if I was like in my teens when that came out, I probably would have just came out of the closet. Because it, <laughs> I just it with that album. Um, See the album cover, like, oh, fuck, let me just, yeah. <laughs> might as well just come on out while I wait. <laughs> and then my other favorite album will be Sister Sledge, uh, We Are Family album, because oh, yeah. one, that cover is very sexy. Oh, God, yeah. I love that cover so much. I always said that to my friends that we need to recreate that cover in some form or fashion. But that whole album is very, and as she can, because, you know, Al Rogers and them working on that, but that whole album mm-hmm. is very sexy and very airy and ethereal in a lot of ways if you listen to it what's your favorite song off that album because i have a very i have a favorite of that my favorite is i'm thinking of you oh that's my favorite too yeah, okay <laughs> it's very dreamy it's it very is dreamy. it's just when like at the end when she's like i'm in love again and you're just yeah. like and all the people are singing and so yeah, and, yeah it's beautiful that. and my group groups would be chic of course because of what they were able to do like there's a song they have um as Chris says, chic, I'm saying it wrong. But that and the first album they had, it's again, not even a, it makes no sense, but I love the way it sounds. Like I'll play it four times in a row just because I love the way it sounds. Um, but I also will say, um, this, this, mm, it wasn't, was it the Spinners? Whoever did Disco Inferno? Tramps. Tramps. Yeah, the Tramps. Because the Tramps were, they gave you disco, they also gave you gospel. Those two, I guess they were brothers. They will just really just scream on that album, basically. I think of mm-hmm. Disco Party. They were just sort of just riffing off each other. I was like, they just having fun just screaming at each other. But I love <laughs> it so much because of the way they sound. Or I love um the party where the party people go. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was like a very great song. Even when they did um 
No, that was a matter. I think it was the other, another group, and I maybe forgot the name, but they did a song called um, "The Mighty High," and it's disco, right, 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 it was yeah, gospel. But that's the Mighty Clouds of Joy, I think. Maybe I think it was. Yeah. But the way they maybe. make that song sound so great, like it's so funny to work out to it. But it's also very funny to like listen to it because it's it's basically a gospel song that you can play in church. And there are a lot like, of remixes to that too. Like yeah. people have just done over the years. Yeah. Uh-huh. But those will be all of my favorite when it comes to. <laughs> I know for me. Okay, so let me pull out this list. Um, one of my favorite. This is in no particular order. Oh, um, you need a scroll of, like an old. A scroll, scroll. I need an old uh, biblical scroll. Scroll that script of paper. One of my favorites is "Get Off" by Foxy. Oh yeah. I mean that. I heard that. My mom has still has that album, and I heard this. I was like, "Oh, this is gay. Oh, this is gay as fuck. <laughs> I like this." And this is what I was still in the closet. So you know, I had to keep my wits about me or keep it under the, my hat. Um, and it, but it was just like, oh. It's a party. It's a, it's that's a party. A, one of those that really is a party on a record. You know, right. it's just like. They were partying hard. Um, the Tell Me remix with Sylvester. Um, I forgot which album that's on, but I always liked the, the instrument, the background music, um, that bass uh, is so... I was like, oh, okay, this is what he's working with. Um, I like uh, I'm Dancing for Your Love on Master Jams. Um, mm-hmm. That whole album is one of my favorite albums ever. Like Any Love. Any Love. I Live in Me. I'm Dancing Live for Your Love. Me, yeah. Uh, what Am I Missing? Um, oh, my God. Well, you know, what am what I missing? That Did you hear her talk about to Club, Quest Love about that song? I didn't know. But that song is about her addiction. You know? Oh, it is. And, yeah, and her like, um, and just that feeling of kind of what I was talking about, but not quite the addiction part, but just like something's going on tonight when I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, she basically was explicit about what she was missing. But yeah, that's a really dark <laughs> song for her I in terms of dealing that. with her being in kind of the depths of um, addiction. Yeah, I love Master Jam too. For some reason, like, Master Jam is such a different album from the rest of their albums. Like, I, it never comes up when I talk about my favorite Rufus albums, even though it's, I would say it's one of my favorite albums, but like, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say it's one of my favorite Rufus albums. I don't know why. You know sense. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It was just every, all of their other albums felt like they were in the same vein. And then Master Jam hits, and it was like, oh, I guess they're trying something new. It, but yeah, it's, I love that album so much. Uh, what else? Uh, we already talked about Chic. I love Savoir Fair and um, Sao Pablo. Uh, Candy Staten's When You Wake Up Tomorrow. Oh my God, yeah. I, I randomly heard that about five or six years ago. And I, cause I'm, I was already a big Candy fan with Victim and uh, mm-hmm. what's the other one? Young Hearts um, Run Phoebe. Exactly. Uh, so I heard that. I was like, oh, okay, she's this. And this was before she, I guess, transitioned to gospel um, later later in her career. But uh, that was that's a, another good one. That's like, uh, you know, how I said Saturday night, Sunday morning was like the idea. When you wake up tomorrow, <laughs> that's what right. I was 
that's, exactly. that's the, when you have that regret, you know. That oh, uh, this is what, who I brought right. home, you know. <laughs> Uh, Anna Minergy uh, with uh, Sylvester and I think it was, who was it, Patrick? Cowley? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I could do this all day. <laughs> um, do you want to get funky with me? Uh, with What was it, Peter? Was it Peter Brown? Oh, yeah, yeah, Peter Brown. Do you want to get funky? Do you want to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the cover I... with the cat on it, with the, um, have you ever seen the, the cover art? It has a cat with a um, fedora. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know why, but <laughs> she was probably high off, you know, other things in life. Uh, I don't know if they would qualify as disco, cause since their sound was more '80s. But change, change. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they had the big hit with uh, Glo- the Glow of Love yeah. with Luther, but you know, their Miracles album had Hold Tight, Hold had tight. Miracles, um, had Paradise. Uh, and then he even changed apart with Jimmy yeah. Jam and Terry Lewis at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had the very best of you or the very best in you. Um, so I don't know if they would qualify particularly as disco. They were more that boogie. after disco. Yeah. yeah. The boogie that you were referring mm-hmm. to. Uh, and I thought this was a disco song. Uh, Star Love. Uh, by oh, Star Love definitely is a disco. You know, making love in the I was, right. I was like, oh lord, but uh, yeah, I, like I said, I can go on and on about disco <laughs> music, uh, throwing songs out there. Um, the timeline knows that I'm still stuck in the '70s. I feel like I, I was born in a different. I should have been born maybe in the '60s rather than the '80s. But you know, I think. All of these other genres, like with techno, um, EDM, trance, house, you know, disco is is their grandfather, so to speak. Most definitely. I think um, particularly one of the bands that I think should have been around, but they're not, is LaBouche. And I thought that uh, Melanie Thornton would make a good, I don't know, like a... Um, a vessel, so to speak, of disco, you know, because she could, I don't think people realize that she could really sing. She's the pussy-ass doll? Oh, no, that was, that's, she was the head of, she was a lead singer in LaBouche before she died. Oh, um, okay. What was, there was a Melanie in the, who's the Melanie from the Pussycat Dolls? There was what's a, her name? I thought it was, don't give me the lion. Um, let me look this up right quick. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was going to say Melissa or... Um, was Because there was Nicole and... Oh, the past members, there was a Melody. Melody. Okay, okay. Not yeah. Melanie. Okay, I gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. But, um, well, you know, there were all those European groups in the 90s where it's basically like, it was a European group with an uh, African-American female singer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whether exactly. you're talking about Black Box or... Um, the first or whatever, time they know. stole her um, homegirl's voice. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> then, she, oh no, Martha Wash had to go to court twice. But see, that's that's a complicated. I'm not saying anything bad about Martha, <laughs> you know. But like, you know, I mean, I think she was singing them demos to get that check. You go into the studio, you sing a demo, you get a check. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? You're not really thinking about what they're doing you don't really care you 
done sung that song and could, especially somebody as talented she is, she probably ran through it once, 15 minutes, got that check and went on to do pay her bills and do what yeah, she needed to do. Right. And so, but then once you hear the shit on the radio, you're like, well, wait a minute. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think everything, that she, I think she deserved everything that she got and all of that kind of stuff. But I do feel like if the records had not become successes, it would not have been a big deal. You know what I mean? Like it was right. only because I do think that she went into a with demos and she had done so many dance records and people like Jocelyn Brown and her, you know, they did so many dance records. Hey, you know, you weren't going to get no royalties off no 12 inch. That's just a hit. You want that check when you leave the studio because you know that's probably going to be the only money that you get from it. You know what I mean? Right. So I think it was just one of those situations where something happened to blow up from the underground and that's how it became a big thing. I don't really buy that she that they were really trying to like I don't think they went into it with the intention of ripping her off. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could, yeah, I can, I can see. Because she had done so many songs with David Cole, like she had done, yeah. like um, that seduction song, "You're My Only One and Only True Love." She had done, um, she does all the vocals on Liz Torres's "If You Keep It Up." So it's just like, but it was like CNC thing, and once you pick, you know, thin homegirl in the front, and then you're like, right, oh, minute. like wait a minute, <laughs> you know? like what's going on here? I, I think one of the reasons disco, well. Yeah, one of the reasons disco and the music resonates with me is like the freedom that it has. And I think for gay men trying to find themselves and it come to terms with their sexuality, it's a a safety harbor. So I can get lost in this music and be sure and be confident that I'm not going to get hurt versus you know stepping out to the real world and you know assuming all of those risks that they have that it has yeah and i love that all of these different artists were you know oh i'll sing backup for this or this or that and i love reading about all of these different these artists that did all of this and like i didn't know for the longest time that you know, Martha was singing with uh, Sylvester. I was like, that voice sounds familiar, but eh, I, I, I didn't know when I was growing up. And now, you know, with the invention of the internet, you can look up all of this kind of information and be like, oh, wow, they did this with that person and this person. Yeah. yeah, I love this. I recently found that song because I was only listening to, uh, what is that song on that album? Uh, I Got the Feeling? Uh, Taking Away Your Space. Oh, take your Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, I love my sad breakup songs. Some <laughs> god, some it's becoming god a trend. I'm, I'm saying that, yeah. Um, go ahead if you were going to say something. No, I wasn't. I was just oh. commenting on your sad take. Your, <laughs> your sad, your taste it's been as my sisters. Uh, back in the day, I was listening to all these sad songs and knowing good and damn well I ain't had a boyfriend, no girlfriend. And I was like, Nick, why do you listen to all these sad ass love songs? I'm like, because I want to feel something. <laughs> yeah, then I love sad songs. I mean, I love I love a sad ballad. I love a, um, you know, yeah. I, do, so uh, I, I feel you. Mm -hmm. with, you know, the whole thing with the you know sitting on a mountain in the wind with some something flowing on you. <laughs> so dramatic. Yeah. Dramatic. I, 
Like I think about Sister Sledge, um, How to Love. I'm like, that is so dramatic. The song is so dramatic, but, it's, but it makes so much sense in a lot of ways. But um, I'll mention Sylvester and I have to say, I wish looking at Sylvester, a lot of his stuff was just pure gay drama, which was just great. Like you think about over and over and mm-hmm. um, just um, all his songs, um, even that live album that he did, like I love that live album. And I love the fact that when you listen to his stuff, like I think of um, Sylvester, his self-titled, it was cute. It was cute for what it, for all the things that it was doing. You had fast, you had slow, but you also had the vocal power of of him and Isora and um, Mar- Martha in in just as as those three together really just giving you so much. So again, y'all, if y'all haven't listened to Sylvester, I you really need to do. <laughs> you really need and I, to. Yeah, and I would recommend even going back to Sylvester and the Hot Band. Like one of my favorite Sylvester songs is "My Life" from. Um, Sylvester and the Hot Band, just because that that's a really intense ballad. And um, yeah, but I think you're right. And so, you know, I just think Sylvester is one of those people like he just really talking about talking about not that's why, you know, it's hard to complain about people not getting when we talk about people not getting flowers now, because when you talk about people like that really didn't get flowers, (laughs) you know, you're talking about Sylvester, because not only did he start and, you know, he had a brief moment but like once um sort of AIDS came on the scene and everything at the record labels they told him to kind of calm tone it down and not be this get not be this flamboyant so he had to go with all those things and then of course um you know he had AIDS and then so he was sort of like distant you know um at that at a very early time so he was kind of ostracized within the industry so yeah, I mean, I just think of, you know, there are a lot of people that really did not. Why is he not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, there's just a lot of people. Um, I don't know. I loved his um, I Need You. Um, oh, I love song. I Need You. That, um, the extended version. Yeah. I love that. Yes. I've been screaming ran- on it. I randomly heard that song on a video game and I, lo- I fell in love with the, the strings um, and I guess that tempo. Um, I was like, well, who is this? I know this is Sylvester. I didn't know he was doing a song. And sure enough, I had to buy that song with a quickness. Because, you know, one of my favorite instruments is a violin. So you mm. put strings on a, a, a album and a record, you know, I'm more than likely down for it. And of course, a lot of disco records have strings. You know, mm-hmm. Sylvester is another one of those people that I think, you know, if you listen to the hits, a lot of people know, like, you make me feel mighty real. And, um, I'm like, like, do you want to funk with me? I mean, those are both fine records and stuff like that, but he has records that are so much more soulful, like over and over with its, mm-hmm. where you really hear the whole church and the church influence on disco. And like he said, I need you, which is just such a soulful record. So it's, again, it's another case of like, whereas the, um, sometimes a song that becomes the most representative song I mean, the song that comes to represent the artist is not the most representative of their talent and their aesthetic, you know? Mm-hmm. Like Respect with uh, Aretha. Oh, God, I, yeah. I cannot stand that song, especially because everybody thinks they can sing it. Really? I'm like, I'm like, hang it up. Please, please stop. And, and that's a whole, we could do a whole episode about Aretha and fucking general, like... 
there's another one who loves her uh her ballads and her uh mm-hmm. sad songs give me uh what's that song uh all the king's horses uh and i'm ready to you know well when i was moment. when i was writing luther um and just, you know, writing a book is just such like an emotionally draining process. I would play um, this, the, this Girls in Love With You album because that has so many depressing songs. <laughs> like, because right. sometimes when you're writing, you have to like just kind of shortcut to your emotions. You have to get to your emotions quick. So it's almost like when you're listening to songs, it's almost an emotional exercise because that's bringing emotions out of you. And, you know, that's not like meeting at the dark end of the street and then with Eleanor Rigby and she's dying and the you know, mm-hmm. going to the grave and just all that kind of right. stuff. So that was an album that really helped me through that um, period just because there were so many sad songs and it helped me um, act, just get to an emotional place really, really quickly, you know. Right. Oh, we could talk about this all day. Um, do we have any last words about disco, Victor or Greg? Just listen to it. Just go back and listen to it. Got Spotify, do it. <laughs> listen, go deep dives. Don't listen to the popular songs. Don't listen to like, I don't know. Like what's, I was gonna say the BG songs, but they had so fucking many. Uh, yeah, just do a deep dive and start with one and then just go further and further. And I'm sure you will like more than one song. And what I would also say is that one thing that I think gets lost in our streaming culture is like remixes were really, 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 really important. You know what I mean? Like the album version of a song throughout the 70s and 80s and stuff, even the 90s were just like the starting point of that. But, you know where people would really stretch out and be creative was on the extended version. Like if you think of the difference between the album version of Over and Over by Sylvester and the extended ver- where they're just, or even I Need You, where they're just like stretching out with those vocals. And the other thing is why I would tell people to like listen to the remixes, like especially a lot of like 90s um, R&B stuff that has remixes is like, they were really doing, like the major labels were really doing that music for us. Like they were really, we were such a force in making stuff that they would say, if they were launching a brandy, they knew that they had to get the black gaze behind a brandy. So they knew they had to have a mix that would work in those clubs. So it's like, there were all of these things that were created for our aesthetics that I feel like the younger generation is just rejecting or thinking that like these things were just bonus things. And it's like, no, these things were like essential. And they were, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times like they were being, when you think of like all the mixes Frankie Knuckles did in the nineties, these were like records being done for a black gay audience by a black gay man. That's important. Like, let's not just forget that history just because it's not streaming. It's like, go on YouTube, you know, find out about it because that was not just something extra to um, the song or to the hit. In a lot of cases, the remix helped make it the big hit that it was. And, you know, people like Janet or um, Whitney or something like that, that these artists really, really knew the importance of their Black gay fan base, and they knew they had to deliver with these mixes for us. So I just hate to just let that go, you know? That's my right. pet peeve. Especially, like, with the, um, who did the, um, 
the Queen of the Night remix. Was it CJ oh, yeah, McIntosh? CJ McIntosh, yeah, CJ yeah, McIntosh. Like, you had a CJ McIntosh, you had Junior Vasquez. Um, who uh, who did the A Deeper Love remix? Was it, I C&C. think it was CSC? Yeah. Really, yeah. Lord, that one. And though, the I'm Every, and you know, they did the I'm Every Woman. They um, did the additional production on Whitney's I'm Every Woman. So it's just like, you know, the this this and David Cole was a black gay man. So it's just like, let's not. I don't know why younger people are not into remixes or something like that, but it's just like I feel like you're denying or not paying attention to a huge part of the music that was done by and for black gay people so like it yeah you might have to youtube it but so what (laughs) (laughs) there's some good good remixes that you can only find on youtube yeah so yeah do your googles and do your searches because that's history right there that's history especially for the black queer culture like and people who follow like, me on Twitter know I'm always good for a mix. You just, oh, Craig, is there a good mix? Yes. You know, <laughs> what is SWV, someone? Yes. You know, <laughs> Escape, yes. Brandy, yes. Monica, yes. Which one, which song you want? You know, mm-hmm. like Mary J. I've, so don't ever, you know, hey, if you at me asking for a mix, that will make my day. So don't ever, <laughs> anybody. You heard it here, y'all. So I guess that's, that brings this episode to a close uh greg thank you so much thank for being you. on the this show has been fantastic this has it's been, been so really much fun. awesome um if you would can you tell everybody where they can find you on the social media sure um you can find me probably too much on twitter at craig's pop life c-r-a-i-g-s-p-o-p-l-i-f-e um i'm also on the instagrams um but not as much. Like my, my main thing is Twitter. And um, I also put out a weekly newsletter, um, which it's, it's on Substack. I think it's like craigspoplife.substack.com. But if you just go to my Twitter page, you can link to my, um, my weekly newsletter there. And I always put in vintage remixes in my weekly newsletter. So for example, this week, I have the cassette only version of Shaka Khan's Clouds by CNC by David Cole and Robert Clavillas that was only on there was a version that was on the album and on the um CD but they also made a version that was only on the cassette so I put that in this week mm-hmm. so like I said you get your remixes in the um links to the remixes in the letter so awesome and you can find us on Twitter we are at Machine one if you want to follow our personal accounts, I'm at NikkiP09, Victor's at WonderMan5. You can like, rate, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, and now Pandora Radio. Um, our website is potoftheshine.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Megashine. Um, is there anything else before you get up out of here? Y'all don't got a TikTok? You done, you done listed uh, everything. Right. <laughs> Y'all need a TikTok. I don't know if I can do a TikTok. I want to see some dances. That's true. Um, <laughs> that's too much. That, <laughs> some of these TikTok dances are too damn much. I'm like, what? Y'all don't move your feet? Like, it's all arms. Like, Y'all want to reach the kids now. I'm, just, I'm, saying, yeah, I'm looking out for a TikTok. To. I might have to put a eight, a eight, sixteen count a bit together down in the basement and 
have one of the cats recorder. <laughs> but you you know, follow us there. Uh, I think that's about it. That's all I got to give. <laughs> all right, y'all. We will see y'all soon. Bye, y'all.